Hi everyone, welcome back to Folk Pie. This is Liam Noble, and boy, do I have a fun series for all you history geeks out there. We're doing something a little bit different. A new format for us. That's right, a podcast. Audio only, no digital psychedelia. This will be a short-run series, uh, six episodes, maybe seven for some bonus stuff. So, valued audience and viewers, I've got with me a great piece of intellectual history. A famous book written by a particularly infamous individual whose name became synonymous with cynical and cunning political intrigue. I'll tell you in a moment. And from there, we're going to look at the world around this work, the culture and atmosphere that helps create it, the time and place, and everything leading up to that time and place where genius struck. In this series, we're journeying into the medieval city of Florence in north-central Italy, smack in the middle of Tuscany. Without further ado... I was in a bookshop the other week, Crow Books, on the top of Church Street in Burlington, my home city. And I was looking through the cheap paperback classics, because I'd be doing that. And one caught my attention, The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. Machiavelli. A lot of people call this work the origin of political science. And you can see why they'd say that. It's a very cynical work. It's a guide on self-interest in politics. Laying out plainly the dynamics of conquest and how to uh, literally keep control of regions, it's a piece of diplomatic realism. It tells how the prince, meaning you, the main character, the political operator, should always honor faith even if you don't believe it. How to inflict fear, which is desirable, without sparking hatred, which could be dangerous and blow up in your face. Uh, That you should take up hunting. To learn the local lay of the land in case you end up having to lead an army someday. In the world of medieval Italy, it was the perfect guide to understanding politics on a big and small scale. And it was controversial at the time. The Catholic Church, who was a big boss in those days, in that place, did not appreciate it. And I should note, neither did the recipient at the time either, hilariously. It was written as a work of patronage and as a personal gift. And the recipient, one young Lorenzo II de' Medici, was like, oh, nice, next, leaving Niccolo Machiavelli, who wrote it for him, personally devastated. And that's a funny story. Eventually, we'll get into it. And The Prince is still a controversial book today. It's a guide on naked power building and ambition. It caters to that ambition. And for that reason, it's attracted a lot of sinister fans. Uh, Hitler was rumored to keep a copy on his nightstand. Mussolini, you better bet this was his favorite book. So why did a book written around 1520-ish by a Florentine civil servant appeal so strongly to the 20th century's most infamous fascists? So I got the book, and I read it. And I gotta say, it's pretty interesting, especially to a geopolitical head like myself. It's a do-or-die book on how to rule other people. It's nuts. Then I started to get curious. Okay, what was the context for when and where this book was written? Who was Niccolo Machiavelli, really? What was happening in the city where he lived, that is, Florence, Repubblica di Firenze? What were the politics like? A republic during the 1400s? During the 1200s? That's interesting. What else was going on at the time? Who were the major players? Specifically, how did this uh, upper class of Republicans justify itself? 
uh, were there major social class divisions? It seemed like a good excuse to dive into history with the prince as our anchor. What was the stew that birthed old Niccolo like exactly? And boy, it is a dramatic narrative, a divine comedy, as it were. Florence in the 13, 14, 1500s was a fascinating and special place for another reason, too. Sure, it's a thriving and colorful culture growing up among the bones of the old Roman Empire. But, first off, it's where our modern capitalism was born. No shit. As the initial flows and complementary parts began to develop into a system, and even at a glance, you can see that shit oozing out of the walls in the world where Machiavelli wrote his book. There's banking monopolies, hidden and disguised usury and loan lending, economic depressions that had big consequences, long-distance trade, finance banking and manufacturing, the sturdy foundation of capitalism, an unholy virtuous cycle. How the system of big money and credit was intertwined with the pontificate, the pope himself, leading a whole damn theocratic apparatus called the Papal States, and the incredible core of wealth and splendor it drew helped create the financial dynasties of medieval Florence. That financial dynasty, precisely and for our purposes, is the famed Medici family, the cast of goofballs in the new money tribe that founded the Medici Bank whose upstart lineage would start obscurely enough and end up producing the wealthiest individuals in Europe during their time, so influential that they would marry French queens, turn England into a distant financial colony, no, seriously, and maneuver their way over a century into de facto control of Florence, thwarting the Republic and turning Firenze into their personal court. Okay, secondly... Central and northern Italy, from Tuscany, that's like Florence, Lucca, Siena, to uh, Venice, to Milan, were the glorious age of the free cities, the communal cities, city-states, or rather city republics. These bad boys had a brilliant glow-up, leveraging the tension between the Pope and the incipient state of the Holy Roman Empire. These cities broke free of the feudal system and went wild, destroying castles in their countryside, so the nobility, those freaks, couldn't come back. And who was boss hog in running the cities? The guilds. The guilds. And you best believe we'll get into the nitty-gritty of the complex and fascinating guild system at its heyday. These were basically the trade unions of their times, and they ran the economies of basically everything until the art of the merchants and their new system of money capital, born to these guilds in embryo, grew strong enough to begin corrupting them from within. Oh yeah, we will get into that. And, crucially, the Renaissance, the reemergence of philosophy in general, a rediscovery of those classics which centered the individual and allowed for ponderous thoughts like, why are we here and what are we made of? This thinking was brand new for this millennia. Questions like this hadn't been posed in like a thousand years, at least in uh, backwards-ass Europe anyway. In Europe, Catholic theology was philosophy. Humanism? Get out of here. And this was basically a proto-reformation. And, you know, I really cringe at the term proto-anything, but in this case, it's kind of true. It was the first jab against the ideological hegemony of the Catholic doctrine. A rebirth, as it were. A literal naissance. A renaissance. And boy, did it resonate with basically everyone. Without further digressions, let's get into it. 
the place, the place Europe. 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 The time, the time, the time between, between the 12th and 16th, 16th century. century. Okay, we got to start the story of Florence and its Renaissance history somewhere. And the coolest place for us to start is in the ashes of the old Roman Empire, which had finally imploded in the 6th century. It totally fell apart for a number of reasons I won't be getting into here, except to say it had a lot to do with an unresolvable debt crisis and the ideological challenge of the new Christianity. It was also due to the end of what's called the Roman Warm Period of the climate, which had lasted from like 250 BCE to 400 AD. It had been responsible for the flourishing of those agricultural civilizations like Rome, and the arrival of a cold period throttled the economic output and also drove the great migratory groups out of Scandinavia and Germany looking for better growing lands. So the German tribes invaded Italy proper and Rome uh, evaporated. And good on them, actually. The migratory tribe of Lombards and others who overran the forums and temples were a more democratic sort, with elected kings, popular assemblies, and rich social ties totally different from the austere Roman legalism. Now, for the well-to-do Romans, the patricians and their ilk, it was certainly traumatic. Their thousand-year Reich was dead, and the lessons of all their forefathers were certainly of a different world. For the new Christian religion, they finally had the chance to build the ideal arrangement that Augustine had promised to them in City of God, a civilization of the flock, guided by the moral teachings of a religious authority that stretched from Hispania to Armenia. St. Augustine, by the way, was the theological and political writer, very influential dude, who helped sculpt what the new Christianity would be like. For example, it's anti-slavery. He said people had no obligation to follow unjust laws and held a general stance of pacifism. That aside, for most people, life continued on as it had before, except that the interregional flows of trade and food stopped, so everyone basically de-urbanized, and the big cities became shells of what they had been. The Roman economy and the system of slavery were one and the same, and as the economy collapsed, the slaves found themselves free. They continued in their agriculture, and their villages lived by subsistence. The German tribes set up their own oath system between themselves and chose persons to govern on their behalf, and this became a rather decentralized but still coherent kingdom of Italia. Long story short, the development of the region took a hard reset, and it would take a lot of time to get any systems working again that were on a bigger scale than, say, you and your neighbors, or the blood oaths between Lombard warriors. Except, of course, for the only real institution left in town after the Roman collapse, the bishops. In fact, the early warrior kingdoms were basically marginal compared to the omnipresent Christianity. The responsibility of civil administration was picked up by the territorial patchwork of bishops, called a diocese, coming from the Greek word for administration. So they played a daily role not just in spiritual guidance, but also in allocation of community resources. Now the leaders weren't political consuls or godly emperors, but rather the bishops and their vaunted book. Importantly, the Bishop of Rome was the head of this network of bishops, uh, and his title comes from the Greek word for father, papas, and from that we get the word pope. 
This power was based on the Christianity of Rome, and there were others, but the Christianity of Rome became the Catholic Church, so these are our guys. When we talk about Christians in Europe, we're talking about the hegemony of the Catholic Church, which was a real political and ideological powerhouse. The bishops and their cadres, the humble priests, played a daily role not just in spiritual guidance, but also in allocation of community resources. So where did the new civil religious administrators channel their resources? Into new monasteries, the educational centers where books were written and copied, thoughts debated and spiritual practice fine-tuned. The monastery system became the centers of art and learning, where the Christian doctrine was debated and elaborated. One problem that came of that is that the old philosophy of the Greeks and such were considered irrelevant, pagan, or heretical. And in the intense climate of the Christianity, theology became philosophy. No longer was it desirable to ask, why am I here? But rather, how will I live until I die and enter heaven? Okay. Despite the fact that the old imperial civilization based on Rome had fallen, the city of Rome remained as the center of this new ideological world, controlling the flows of resources. This church was the only real power in Europe for a time. After all, it was the largest landholder by far, and therefore the most powerful entity bar none. Even the settled tribal invaders from Germany converted to this faith, adopting the ideology and mentality to ally themselves with the Pope. It was a political gesture. But this position of unchallenged power has big effects, corrupting effects. All that wealth that the church demanded was concentrated within its coffers, Power secretes capital, and the church became wealthy from its position, despite its supposed renunciation of material wealth. This created a lot of problems. First up was the heretical sects, and then secular critical leaders like Arnold of Brescia, a Roman revolutionary who led a revolt in the year 1144 called the Roman Commune that attempted to reinstall a citizen's republic with the old Roman Republic as their inspiration. The banner they carried was emblazoned with SPQR, about a millennium late on that one, guys, but I, I guess I like the hustle. And hustle they did, demanding that the Pope renounce his temporal authority over the church and take up the duties of a humble priest. Arnold said that the church was failing to provide the real spiritual guidance that people were craving, and he was probably right. Why is this important? First, because it's cool. They took over Rome, reinstalled a Roman Senate, killed the Pope, a fighting Roman dropped a stone on his head, legit domed him, and they refused to let his successor be consecrated in the city. Until the city was stormed by foreign Germans on the Pope's behalf, Arnold of Brescia was arrested, hanged, burned, and his ashes thrown into the Tiber. Classic Roman sentence, actually probably the highest honor a true Roman could expect to receive is being tossed in the Tiber River. Where was I? Oh yeah, the real reason this is important is because the revolutionary Roman Senate tried to ally itself with the insipid Holy Roman Empire, which was a new thing born out of the old world of Charlemagne. The Holy Roman Empire, which has nothing to do with Rome, the city, this empire is centered around Germany, was a new political formation, and it did not get along with the Pope. 
rhetorically, they were on the same side, uh, Christian brothers, yada, yada. But in the world of geopolitics, this contestation for influence would set the stage for, like, the next 500 years. See, the Holy Roman Empire is what we call a state. And the Holy Roman Emperor recovered the old Roman laws, the Corpus Juris Servilis, the Codex of Law, to administer his empire. This is critical to the state because the corpus juris self-consciously forbids any other source of law or judgment or justice. It's the foundation of legal monopoly within a territory, a monopoly of justice, of violence, that the imperial pronouncements of this head of state have the force of law itself. This really is the characteristics of the state, and these Roman laws still serve as the backbone of the modern Western legal tradition. Yes, yes, we still live in Rome. And the state tends to gobble up the authority of anything that isn't itself. The authority of the cities and villages, for example, the authority of independent armies, the markets and traders, it homogenizes and erodes the mosaic of diversity within its claimed territory. That's its natural intention. Okay, with that out of the way, we can see why this would clash with papal authority, the authority of Rome to have its word across any mere temporal boundary or silly legal realm. But the Holy Roman Empire, the state, wants its authority to appoint the Christian bishops within its territory up in Germany, which at this time was like, yeah, all of modern Germany, all of the lowland countries of like Holland, Bohemia, southeast France, and Italy from Rome northwards. So, yeah, taking away from the church the power to appoint bishops, I'm sure they'll love that. They did not. It became a huge power struggle between the two large entities of the time. It started a century-long controversy over who would have the right to choose and install bishops, who are, I'll remind, like the local governors of each province, basically. These guys, the bishops, had a lot of power, and with powerful office comes the desire to control that office, and here we are. So, Florence. This is important for the history of Florence, well, because Florence sits pretty much smack dab in the middle between Rome and the Alps, beyond which was Germany. It's pretty distant from the Holy Roman Empire, but still within its claimed territory of jurisdiction. So Florence's political life pretty early on revolved around which faction you were with, Pope or Imperials. If you were with the Pope's faction, you were a Guelph. If your status favored the German imperial authority over Florence, you are a Ghibelline. Now, the Ghibelline faction were the old aristocrats whose families stretched back to the Lombards or their contemporaries or the local landowners who styled themselves as aristocrats, and these guys would be roughly comparable to feudal nobles. They benefited from the empire's laws, which enshrined their position. The Guelph faction were those associated with Rome, real Rome, the Pope and the Church. So the bishops and clergy were de facto Guelphs, and low nobles who united to claim some privileges for themselves, and also uh, upstarts who couldn't consider themselves nobility. They were the new men who were influential, successful, wealthy, but not quite legitimate. 
they didn't have any real political power themselves, so they threw in with the Guelphs in a bid that they could see their day. The Guelphs, by their nature, were a little subversive because they opposed the aristocratic imperials. They were necessarily opposing their laws. They may even have wanted new, different laws. Crazy. This was the party of the municipality, the faction of the free cities caught between the two big powers of the time. Now, Florence had a pretty dynamic political life. It's an interesting municipality to say the least. The city at the turn of the millennium, we'll say like 1000 CE, was pretty much self-governing. The citizens elected small officials called consuls to find justice and settle disputes, uh, levy taxes, and lead the civic militias. The cities of the medieval period were pretty special places, and there was a lot of civic pride. There were municipal councils, assemblies of the residents where political issues were discussed publicly. The natural state of politics, that's to say, democracy. There's a big caveat here, however. The governance and administration of the region of Tuscany, including Florence, was handled by appointees of the Holy Roman Emperor called vicars. It was a pretty luxurious position, a cake job with a lot of benefits. Those appointed to be vicars would walk the high circles of grand political influence, schmoozing in imperial courts and finding ways to make themselves glamorous. Those in Florence who benefited from their personal connection to the vicars and the empire got the chance to skim a lot of wealth off the top and were the recipients of gifts and homages. Their class is familiar to us as aristocrats, right? And they put a lot of energy into justifying their position, commissioning artworks, building palaces, dressing elegantly, or crafting fanciful ceremonies that set them apart from the plebs. So obviously, most people did not benefit from that imperial arrangement. And as the Pope and the Empire began to chafe, some saw the opportunity to throw in their lot with the church, in the hope that if the aristocrats were challenged, it would open up some room for the little guys. And with that, the feud between the Guelph and Ghibellines was on. While Florence was uh, more of a Guelph city, just like in today's world, political change or coups could swap the fortunes and allegiances of the city. One year, Florence would be a Guelph city, and then there would be a huge change in the winds. Uh, the Guelphs exiled, and the Ghibellines would come to power, and all of Florence's resources used in service of the Empire's faction. Then, just as quick, the Guelphs' Italian allies would rally and reinstall the Guelphs in Florence, and the political situation would swap again. This was the really messy reality in 11 and 1200s North Italy, and most people were pretty much just caught in the middle. It was a contentious, often violent place, with a lot on the table. The trophy was political and economic freedom, which is a big motivator. People have killed over a lot less, and till they did. These factional rivalries became reasons de jour for these cities to go to war with one another, ostensibly for their greater cause, but let's think realpolitik, to enforce concessions, settle scores, or steal precious money from the neighbor's coffers. They would fight and fight and fight uh, within the cities as well as between them, and the city pretty much exploded into civil war in the year 1215. 
There are family palaces within the city that erected guard towers atop their roofs. And a lot of the city got wrecked, burned down, with citizens displaced, maimed, and killed. Fun times. It coincides with even funner times as Frederick II, the emperor of the HRE, outraged at having been excommunicated by the pope. Uh, excommunication is that fun little red card the Catholics keep in their back pocket for special occasions. And being indignant at the rebellious nature of the Italian cities, rampaged down with his German armies, sacking all the cities as he went, and adding a delightful spice of existential danger to the whole Guelph Ghibelline dispute. But the cities of Italy were not to be pushed around so easily, and formed an ad hoc confederation to militarily resist the imperial troops. The Pope, faced by Frederick's armies, excommunicated this guy a second time. I'm not sure how that works. Like, you can be uh, double excommunicated if you've been extra bad. And the mercenaries of the Italian cities sent the Germans home packing. The warfare against the Italians was prohibitively expensive for the German state, and the Holy Roman Empire would never again prove as influential among the hills of Italia. The Confederation of Italian Cities successful, they set down their arms like Cincinnatus and returned to their vineyards and harbor cities. This will pop up a few times in this series, so I may as well explain it now. The Italian quadrangle are the four big communal cities of North Italy. Genoa on the west coast, Venice in the east in their Blue Lagoon, Milan up north, and Florence south on the Arno River. Now, Frederick II, having been defeated, died in 1250, and the death of an emperor leaves a huge power vacuum all across the region. And in the city of Florence, the Guelphs took the opportunity to kick ass and triumph hard, and they expelled the Ghibellines from the city. All the Ghibellines and their families, like genuinely hundreds of people, were kicked out of the city and told to go make it somewhere else. This is our club now. Expulsion or exile has got to be my favorite method of Italian punishment. Just like, you're banned. Go away. The vicar of Tuscany, the representative of the empire, was expunged. This victory was crucially important. Remember when I said that the Guelphs were trading upstarts, new men of moneyed means? Well, as soon as they took the city and expelled their rivals, they did something very interesting. They declared a republic, a real republic. It was the Republic of Prominent Men, which lasted a scant 10 years. But it was a complex political structure of popular assemblies, elders, councils, elected executives. It could very well be called an approach towards a popular government. It was a hella interesting experiment. And all this stuff was kind of floating around the city to begin with. They had neighborhood assemblies. They had light self-management. And now it was being institutionalized. It was the tools that were lying around. Better make them official. Vickers gone? Great. Let's just assemble all these kind of pre-existing uh, structures into one government for the city. Okay, here comes the politics nerd bit coming out in me. And I'm taking a second to lay out these things a bit analytically. Here is how the Republic was of these separate uh, interworking bodies. There was a council of elders, 12 of them chosen from the prominent commercial families, a council of 36 uh, citizens whose jobs it was to seek agreement within the government, not an easy task, 
a captain of the people who balanced the interests of the traders and merchants against the old nobility, whatever was left of them. There was a people's council of 150 members and the elected Gonfalonier, who led the city's militias, and the Podesta, the executive, um, apparently chosen from among foreign citizens to help make the decisions that they made more impartial, which is interesting. The Elders' Council is familiar to us through primordial history. Think about, like, uh, the Roman Senate or any Senates throughout history, uh, like Abrahamic history. There's all sorts of uh, Elders' Councils in, like, the Jewish tradition. All the same thing. Old people have a lot of knowledge and influence accrued. And they're one of the OG sources of cultural heritage. They're crafty. They got a scheme to save some social surplus for themselves because God knows they can't forage or hunt anymore. They got to make sure there's a place cut out for them in the large family structure, some sort of subsidy, and a club to hang out with the other olds, hence the Council of Elders. Now, the Council of 36 was like an intermediary group whose task was to reconcile the relatively diverse interests of the Republic's upper class, and by upper class I mean the people who ran the city. You got some merchants, you got some bankers, you got some lawyers. They're not always going to agree, especially when political factions come into the mix. So these guys have the hard job of finding consensus between the parties. Good fucking luck! The Podesta was like the city's executive, or close to it. They wielded authority over the city and were kind of like dictators who were invited to take the reins over the civil administration and sort things out. Like, no joke, the bitter factional rivalries so familiar to Italian politics meant that sometimes problems were known and understood, but consciously not fixed. Like when the city's budget is broken, and the wealthy merchants are freaking out because there's a fiscal crisis, but they don't want to raise taxes on themselves, so they'd invite an outsider, literally someone from outside the city, to take control of the Podesta office for a time. Come here. You have power, fits our problems, so we don't get blamed for the downside of fixing said problems. Hey, thanks. Please leave now. The captain of the people uh, was an administrative title for the role of balancing the power of the old families against the new families, mostly the traders, uh, who called themselves the people. With the People's Council, I couldn't find a ton of information on this section of the Republic at this time. Uh, by nomenclature, I'm taking the leap that it was probably a forum for municipal assemblies to vent displeasure. A more uh, democratic base populated by citizens of the municipality. But not the poorest of the poor. There's still a lot of bias against those guys. Now, my favorite. The Gone Fallen Year. These guys were critical to political change in the merchant republics of the Italian quadrangle. They were the heads of the militia, and thus had implicit power through ability to wield violence like Zeus wields lightning. That said, it was violence on a, on a very small, very, very small scale. But still, whenever the winds of change were blowing in Florentine history, the gone fallen year would rear his head to tip the scales. They were on the side of the little guys against the excesses of the merchants. Their job was to keep public order, so they would represent at least an echo of the people's will to keep them from getting too stirred up. Another office is called the Gone Fallen Year of Justice, similar in that it's basically the same thing. The Constitution of Florence, its incorporating and political documents, went through a lot of page one rewrites over the years, but the rubric stays roughly the same. 
The Gallenfallingera leads the militias, sits in government, and roughly protects the little people against the excesses of that merchant class. Oh snap, look at that. It is 1250, and with the vicars and the damn gibbelines driven out, Florence has become a republic. And with this power to coordinate resources and create city symbols, the Republic did something that lasted quite a while longer, beyond its own constitution. They began minting a city currency, and calling it a city currency really does not do it justice. It circulated everywhere, around the Mediterranean and all across the Islamic world. It was called the Florin, for Florence, right? It was the first coin struck in quantity since the days of Charlemagne in like the 700s. Well, now it's the damn 1200s, and the florin was the choice unit of international trade. It featured a lily bouquet on one side and John the Baptist, patron saint of Florence, on the other. Pretty. And pretty important. Control over the city meant control over the currency, its minting and distribution. This is a real development in Florence, a finance development. And getting in on the ground floor, minting a gold-ass coin and having it floating around meant that everyone used it. And if everyone's trying to get their hands on the florin, that makes it valuable. And a strong, dependable currency is pretty invaluable for trading and banking. There is a dire importance here, one we'll get into later. Alright, so if the Guelphs had seized power... It was not easily retained. The Ghibellines were restored following a military conquest between Florence and Siena, including German allies against Florence, in 1260, just 10 years after the Republic's declaration, that saw the Florentine Guelphs routed. The battle, called the Battle of Monteperi, meant that the old aristocrats seized power in the city and began reversing the laws and institution and council systems of the popular government. Except that they didn't touch the florin. They left alone that particular achievement. Anyway, the new situation was still just too unstable. The power of the empire in Italy was basically defunct at this point. The old aristocrats, despite having won a uh, military encounter, did not have the backing or legitimacy of the old empire, which had sort of just retreated. They might take power... Uh, but just like the Guelphs, keeping it was another story. So a critical thing happens now, and we'll wrap up the episode with it. The culmination of uh, the past few hundred years. One of those Ghibellines who recognized the precariousness of his political faction decided to swap sides. His name was Gianno della Bella, and he came from one of the oldest noble families of the region, and he saw that times were changing in Tuscany, and to be allied with the empire was to be allied with the dodo. He convinced the city's gonfalonier to propose his plan for the reform of the city's politics, one that would hopefully prove more stable and root the power firmly within the city's walls, freeing it of any feudal influence. Starting in the year 1293 came Giano della Bella's Ordinances of Justice. The ordinances would declare a whole new constitution, not to mention banning explicitly the old Ghibellines from office, and incorporating yet another of Florence's particular institutions into the government, one that had been growing in spades for at least a century in its form, that being the guild system, the arts of Florence. What the Ordinances of Justice did, building off the old constitution of 1250, was center the politics of the city around the syndicate associations of job doers. 
Now, Florence would be governed by 12 priors, counselors, basically, drawn by lottery from eligible men in the guild system. And it was consciously structured against corruption. The offices would be chosen on rotating two to six-month terms, depending. So there's a very high turnover rate, and everyone gets their chance at their turn in the driver's seat. And there's a lot of buy-in that comes with that. The guilds, or the arts, were made up of high arts and low arts, or major arts and minor arts. The priors wouldn't just be taken by blacksmiths or vine hawkers or lowboys like that. No, there was definitely a distinction. The major arts were the ones in charge, definitely. They were the men of letters, the judges and lawyers, furriers, physicians and pharmacists. And the driver of Florence's glory, the Arte del Cambio, the bankers and money changers, loan lenders. They would be selected from to run the city. And if you were anybody who was anybody, anybody except one of those freeloading nobilities, that is, you were part of a guild. Critically, it meant the landowners were explicitly excluded from political power in the city. Now, the old landowners could associate themselves with a guild, and some did, but it meant entering the system of labor craft and its various obligations, diluting the direct power of the already diminished nobility. In fact, the famous poet Dante was a Florentine citizen heavily involved in the politics. And he chose to become a pharmacist and enter the pharmacist guild to access the Signoria. Frankly, that is a brilliant move, and it meant Florence had achieved the dope position of a truly free city. All the politics were retained by the citizens themselves, not castle-dwelling interlopers that could boss them around any longer. The thin people, the Italians called them, those in minor arts, or without a craft trade at all, were definitely excluded from any power. They really did not have a voice in the government. Although they could have one in the street, they were municipal assemblies, they were not allowed in the priory. But there would be opportunities coming down the line to challenge that reality. Even through all the tumult that is to come over the next few hundred years in the rest of these episodes, the guilds would remain the centerpiece of the political system, the brains and bones of the republic, although the powerful families would stay as the muscle. Here we've established now the origins of the republic. I hope that was clear enough and that the politics uh, became wound around the complex guild system, which we'll get into further on in episode three. And crucially, the tip-top crown of the guild system were the bankers, the most prestigious and wealthy of all the citizens. And their development of a currency meant that new developments to expand their power and articulate their systems was on its way. The history of Florence, Italy, is the history of finance money. And oh, Lord, here he come. In the future, mind you, the Guelphs would split and split again, even in their victory, in the absence of a larger threat. In the future, the splits would divide the guilds against one another. And as the new political reality was felt and realized, the lower arts would demand representation and equality. As it stands right now, there is no chance of that happening. Yet. But it's 1300 already, and for Florence, the plague is right around the corner. And that infamous Black Plague, the pestilence, is going to shake quite a few things up, bust some fortunes, and propel Florence into the heights of glamour, setting the stage for one particular upstart family to seize the reins of the new flowering city. 
Join us next time for episode two, The Rise of the City of Florence, where we'll talk about the turbulence of the damned 1300s, the political turmoil, the wars waged, and fortunes lost. Catch you next time. This is Liam Noble from Folk Pie signing off. Peace. 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 Peace.